You are listening to Episode 6 of Stoicism on Fire. Hello everyone, this is Chris Fisher welcoming you to the Stoicism on Fire podcast, where the ancient practice of Stoic philosophy as a way of life and rational form of spirituality is still alive. Epictetus, the freed slave turned Stoic philosopher and teacher, said, Some things are within our power, while others are not. Within our power are opinion, motivation, desire, aversion, and, in a word, whatever is of our own doing. Not within our power are our body, our property, reputation, office, and, in a word, whatever is not of our own doing. In Chiridion 1. In episode 5 of the Stoicism on Fire podcast, I covered the practice of attention, prosuke, which is, according to the philosopher Pierre Haydot, the fundamental Stoic spiritual attitude. In this podcast, I will cover the category of things to which we are to pay attention. Those are the things that are within our complete control. The popular term for this concept is the dichotomy of control, which Epictetus distinguished as what is and is not up to us. Pierre Hedot called this distinction the fundamental rule of life for the Stoic practitioner. Therefore, when we focus our attention on what is up to us, we combine the fundamental Stoic spiritual attitude with the fundamental rule of life, and end up with what Hedot calls the fundamental Stoic attitude or Stoic moral attitude. This attitude is what enables us to make progress along the Stoic path, the path of the Prokopton. Hedo defines this fundamental Stoic attitude in detail in his book, The Inner Citadel. Referring to Enchiridion 1, Hedo writes, Here we can glimpse one of the Stoics' most fundamental attitudes, the delimitation of our own sphere of liberty as an impregnable islet of autonomy in the midst of the vast river of events and of destiny. What depends on us are thus the acts of our soul, because we can freely choose them. We can judge or not judge, or judge in whatever manner we please. We can desire or not desire, will or not will. By contrast, that which does not depend on us, Epictetus lists our body, honors, riches, and high positions of authority, is everything that depends upon the general course of nature. Our body, first, it is true that we can move it, but we are not completely in control of it. Birth, death, sickness, involuntary movements, sensations of pleasure or of pain. All these are completely independent of our will. As for wealth and honors, we can, to be sure, attempt to acquire them. Yet definite success does not depend upon us, but upon a series of human factors and events which are exterior to us. They are imponderable and do not depend upon our will. Thus, the Stoic delimits a center of autonomy, the soul, as opposed to the body, and a guiding principle, hegemonicon, as opposed to the rest of the soul. It is within this guiding principle that freedom and our true self are located. End quote. The key phrase in this passage from Hedo's book, The Inner Citadel, is, quote, the impregnable islet of autonomy, end quote. As we consider what is and is not up to us, it is easy to see this fundamental rule of life as limiting. However, throughout the Discourses and the Enchiridion, Epictetus teaches this rule for the opposite reason. It is by understanding what is and is not up to us that we can find true freedom. 
It is not an accident that Epictetus, a freed slave, emphasizes this rule and the freedom it provides. He understood the nature and value of true freedom as a result of the life he experienced. The Stoics understood that externals cannot bring us the well-being we seek. Having them is an indifferent to our moral character. However, desiring them and pursuing them is a path to psychological anguish. Why? Because they can all be taken away in a moment. In a fire, a life-threatening illness, a hostile takeover of a company, a layoff, a market crash, a divorce, a terrible accident, etc. They may make us temporarily happy, but that is not what the Stoics meant by the Greek word eudaimonia. The eudaimonia of the Stoics was the sense of well-being that comes from the pursuit of virtue, or human excellence, in the areas of wisdom, courage, justice, and moderation. The Stoics teach us it is possible to live an excellent or virtuous human life and thereby experience that well-being under any circumstances. That includes being imprisoned, enslaved, and even tortured. That is an entirely novel concept for most moderns. We tend to measure our happiness by externals, what we own, our health, job, relationships, etc. The Stoic argument against this measurement of happiness is really quite simple. Our human excellence, or virtue, and the resulting well-being cannot be dependent on anything we do not have complete control over. Otherwise, to use Epictetus's language, we are a slave to those externals. So what is up to us? Well, Enchiridion 1.1 makes it quite clear what is up to us, and the list, quite frankly, is pretty short. It includes our value judgments, our desires and aversions, and our impulse to act. In the show notes, I've offered a diagram which shows a circle and those three elements inside that circle. Outside that circle, we see a whole list of externals, which would include the behavior of others, politicians, traffic, an angry customer, a rude driver, wealth, health, fame, reputation, a tennis match, family relationships. The list goes on and on and on. But each of those things are externals that are beyond our control. What is important to understand here is that those three things are value judgments, desires, aversions, and impulse to act. The things that are inside that circle of control, nothing, no one, not even God can influence what is inside that circle. Epictetus teaches us that we have complete control over all three items inside that circle. We are the master of that inner domain. Unfortunately, we typically desire to control things outside of that circle what the Stoics called externals or indifference. We desire good health, some wealth, a good reputation, etc., and we fear sickness, poverty, low social status, etc. Epictetus repeats one profound truth throughout the Discourses and the Enchiridion, and it is quite easy to understand. However, most of us refuse to consider it. What is that truth? We spend most of our lives desiring and fearing things that are not up to us, because we consider them good or bad. And that practice is what leads to our psychological misery. Meanwhile, we tend to neglect the things that are wholly within our control, our judgments, desires, and aversions, and our impulses to act. How important is this distinction between what is up to us and what is not up to us? When we read the Discourses and Enchiridion of Epictetus, we find that this is a critically important topic. Last year, I did a little investigation of my own. I decided to read through the discourses and the Enchiridion and attempt to see how many times the dichotomy of control or the idea of what is up to us and what is not up to us was actually mentioned by Epictetus. 
Surprisingly, I found that Epictetus mentions this concept in at least 50 of the 96 chapters of the Discourses, and in at least 16 of the 53 chapters of the Enchiridion. Chapter 1, in fact, of the Discourses is focused exclusively on this topic. In the show notes, I've included a chart that I created. I have, on occasion, called this chart both the promise and the warning of Epictetus. It's derived from Enchiridion 1. There we see Epictetus clearly delineating two paths. One path, where we follow those things that are not up to us. We try to accumulate the things that are not within our power. And the other path is where we deny our desire for those things that are not up to us. The reason why it's a warning and a promise is at the end of each path, we see those two things, either a warning or a promise. If we follow the path toward those things that are not up to us, Epictetus says, we will be hindered. We will lament. We will have a troubled mind, and we will blame the gods and other humans. In contrast, if we follow the path and only focus our attention on those things that are within our power, Epictetus promises that no one will ever coerce us. We won't be hindered. We will never blame anyone. We will never accuse anyone. We will never do anything against our will. We will not have any enemies, and we will not suffer any harm. As you can see, The difference between the result of those two paths is strikingly different. This brings us to the topic of indifference in Stoicism. There's a lot of confusion about this concept, and it is a mistake to assume that the Stoic practitioner, the Prokopton, is indifferent to all externals. If by indifferent we mean a total lack of interest in them and no pursuit of them at all. Food, water, shelter, etc. are indifference. They are externals in Stoicism. However, we will not survive long without them. It is a natural human impulse to survive, therefore we pursue food, water, shelter, etc. Additionally, Stoicism teaches us that we are social animals, and it is our duty to be involved in society. If we misinterpret a life in agreement with nature and misunderstand indifference, we could easily turn Stoic practice into the ascetic life of a renunciant hermit. That is most certainly not what the Stoics had in mind. If you are living a life in isolation from as many externals as possible, including other humans, how will you develop your virtue? What would a life of wisdom, courage, justice, and moderation even look like without externals? The practice and development of virtue requires externals. Therefore, as a Stoic Prokopton, we cannot deny all externals. The question that naturally arises then is this, what did the Stoics mean when they categorized all externals as indifference? They meant they have no inherent moral value. They are neither good nor bad in the sense that possessing them makes us more or less virtuous. If we had an old-fashioned balance scale that could measure value and we placed wisdom, courage, justice, and moderation on one side, that side of the scale would immediately drop as the value of virtue is immense. Now we could start stacking indifference on the other side. Health, wealth, reputation, a house, high office, a long life, friends, family, a just government, etc., etc. No matter how many of those we stack on the other side, we won't even get that value scale to budge. Why? Because none of those externals has any inherent value when measured against virtues. Nevertheless, there is an extremely important point that is frequently misunderstood about externals or indifference, and I use those words interchangeably because all externals are, in fact, indifference. 
While they do not have any inherent value, many of them do have practical value. That means we can and must use some indifference in our daily life. The Stoics labeled those preferred indifference. These are indifference that may be useful in the development of our human excellence or virtue. Therefore, our task as a Stoic Prokopton is not to deny that indifference have any value. Instead, our training must lead us to the realization that indifference will not bring us happiness. Equally important is the understanding that desiring externals will bring us the opposite of virtue and happiness. It will result in psychological distress. And that brings us to where the rubber meets the road in our daily lives, where we must make choices about indifference. Again, the Stoics were not renunciants. They did not renounce property, money, public office, social relationships, etc., as the ancient cynics did. The Stoics did not deny the value of externals entirely. They denied their inherent value. The Stoic message is quite clear. Virtue is the only good. Therefore, if we seek externals as a good, we will be hindered. We will lament. We will have a troubled mind. And ultimately, we will blame gods and humans for our distress. Enchiridion 1. Nevertheless, we do choose some externals in our daily life as a part of being a social creature and fulfilling our duties. Epictetus uses the analogy of a banquet to drive this point home. In Enchiridion 15, we read, Remember that you should behave in life as you do at a banquet. Something is being passed around and arrives in front of you. Reach out your hand and take your share politely. It passes. Don't try to hold it back. It has yet to reach you. Don't project your desire toward it, but wait until it arrives in front of you. So act likewise with regard to your children, to your wife, to public office, to riches, and the time will come when you're worthy to have a seat at the banquet of the gods. So, what does that analogy mean? How do we apply it to dealing with externals in our daily lives? The answer lies in one important phrase within that passage. Epictetus instructs us not to project our desires toward anything outside of our control. It is important to note that he did not instruct us to go to the banquet, sit still, allow the food to pass by us, and go hungry. Instead, we are to wait until the external, in this case the plate of food, is brought to us. Then, when it is in front of us, within arm's reach, we can take a portion. If, on the other hand, we project our desire toward that tray of food, As it is entering the room, we instantly create a longing to have what is not up to us, not within our control. What happens then if the server trips and accidentally dumps all the food on the dirty floor? What happens if the tray is empty when it reaches you? What if the host simply does not offer you any food? If your desire for that food is strong, you will have cause to lament. You will have a troubled mind, and you'll find fault with both gods and human beings. How do we apply that banquet analogy to our lives? Well, the food on the tray is analogous to the attractive mate, the high-paying job, the big house, the new car, etc. that we might desire. None of those things are inherently good or bad, and if fate happens to bring them within arm's reach, we can take a portion. Nevertheless, as practicing Stoics, we must not desire them. We must not reach to acquire them. We must trust that destiny will bring them near us if they were meant to be ours. This is a critically important point. We must understand the potential danger of projecting our desires toward any of those externals, lest we become a slave to them. Again, Epictetus warns, 
Haven't you heard it repeatedly stated that you must completely eradicate desire and direct your aversion solely toward things that lie within the sphere of choice, and that you must give up everything, your body, possessions, reputation, and books or motion, and office or freedom from office? For if you turn aside from this course, you'll become a slave. You're subject to others. You're liable to hindrance and constraint. You're entirely in the power of others. Discourses 4.4.33 Again, it's important to note that Epictetus is not saying the things delineated in that passage are bad. It is the desire for them that is a problem. Where does that leave us as a practicing Stoic? It leaves us somewhere between denial and desire. And that's where we have to live our Stoic life. We do not deny ourselves a good job, good health, nice home, etc. Those are preferred over the alternatives. On the other hand, we must not allow ourselves to start desiring those externals. If we do, we will inevitably suffer the consequences Epictetus describes in Enchiridion 1. The Stoic way of life, therefore, is lived without denying or desiring externals. Again, it's a life lived between denial and desire. Epictetus' banquet story may be unsatisfactory for those who are looking for hard and fast rules to answer questions like, is it okay for a Stoic to be wealthy? Is it okay for a Stoic to be a political leader? Is it okay for a Stoic to have fame and fortune? The answer is, maybe. It might be yes if fate brings those things to you and places them within arm's reach. The answer is no if you desire them as ends in themselves and seek them for any reason other than for the pursuit of virtue. Here's a simple question you can ask yourself. Here's a simple question you can ask that may help you determine whether it is appropriate for you to take a portion of any given external. Will the loss of that external bring you psychological distress? That is not meant to imply you would be emotionless at the loss of the external. Stoics are not emotionless. However, if you are in possession of something, the loss of which would psychologically destroy or damage you, that is a danger sign, according to the Stoics. Still, we must keep in mind that we cannot make hard and fast rules that will apply to all people in all circumstances. The austerity practiced by Marcus Aurelius is quite different than that practiced by an Epictetus. Yet, they both lived the Stoic way of life in agreement with nature. Therefore, one person's austerity may be another person's opulence. Please don't misunderstand my point. Any subjectivity regarding externals cannot be based on our individual preferences. Instead, is based on what the will of the providential cosmos has assigned us. When considering externals, we must keep Marcus's profoundly powerful words from Meditations 4.23 in mind. Everything suits me that suits your designs, O my universe. Nothing is too early or too late for me that is in your good time. All is fruit for me that your seasons bring, O nature. All proceeds from you, all subsists in you, and to you all things return. So many of the things and events in our lives are simply not up to us. Yet we frequently struggle to control what we cannot, rather than learning to live in agreement with the nature of things. That is the point of the famous Stoic doctrine, to live in agreement with nature. It can be more easily understood as living in agreement with the nature of things, the way things happen in nature. Why must we conform our desires and will to nature? Because most things and events that occur in nature are beyond our control. Our refusal to accept that truth and live accordingly causes us psychological angst. That is the point of Stoicism. People often ask what difference it makes whether one believes the cosmos is providentially ordered or just a random, fortuitous series of accidents. 
First, I'm not sure what it would mean to live in agreement with a random universe, beyond mere submission to necessity. However, that turns the cosmos into a metaphorical equivalent of a brutal tyrant that leaves us no choice but to submit. We do not see that attitude of mere submission within the writings of Seneca, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, or the discourses in Enchiridion of Epictetus. Certainly, there are references to submission to fate necessity. Nonetheless, the Stoics did not stop at submission. Instead, they argued we must develop an attitude of gratitude toward all of the events of nature. Epictetus argues, from everything that happens in the universe, it is easy to praise providence if one has within him two things, the faculty of taking a comprehensive view of things that happen to each person and a sense of gratitude, for otherwise one will either fail to recognize the usefulness of what has come about or else fail to be truly grateful if one does, in fact, recognize it. Discourses 1.6.1-2 I fully understand that many moderns object to this aspect of Stoicism. Nevertheless, it is a fundamental and essential part of Stoic practice as the ancients conceived it. That is the reason we see statements like the following from Epictetus on this topic. From Discourses 1.1.17, we read, What are we to do then? To make the best of what lies within our power and deal with everything else as it comes. And how does it come then? As God wills. And again in Discourses 1.12.15, Is it then only in this most grave and important matter, that of freedom, that it is possible for me to desire according to my whim? In no way, but rather true education consists precisely in this, in learning to wish that everything should come about just as it does. And how do things come about? As the one who ordains them has ordained. Now that we have some grasp of the distinction between what is and is not up to us, and some clarification on how we are supposed to deal with those things and events that are outside of our control, it is time to take a deeper look at those things which are up to us. After all, those are the things that we are to focus our attention on in order to develop our human excellence and thereby experience well-being. The first on the list is value judgments. These are the beliefs and opinions that are derived from our value judgments of external things and events. As Epictetus teaches us, it isn't what has happened that so distresses this person, for someone else could suffer the same without feeling that distress, but rather the judgment that he has formed about it in Caridian 16. These value judgments are the result of our interpretation of things and events in nature. Stoicism teaches us that things and events are neither good nor bad for us. Instead, it is our judgment of those things and events that determine its value to us. Therefore, interpreting and judging things and events correctly is critically important for the Stoic. What one person considers a tragic event, another person may take on as an opportunity for the development of their character. It is not the things and events in our life that cause us distress. It is our mistaken interpretation of them. Our judgments are completely within our control. They are up to us. Next, we have desires and aversions. They are typically two sides of the same coin. The meaning of desire is rather intuitive. However, another word for aversion is fear. Therefore, desires are the things we want or the events that we want to happen, and aversions are the things that we do not want to happen, the things that we fear. When our lives are driven by desires for some things and fears of others, we are in a state of psychological distress. The Stoics called that pathé. As should be obvious, there is a causal connection between our value judgments and our desires and aversions. What we desire and what we fear are completely 
within our control. They are up to us. Finally, we have impulses toward action. The impulse to act is the final step in the process, the process of value judgments to desires and aversions to impulses to act. When we consider this causal chain, the reason for the Stoic emphasis on assent, which creates the value judgments, becomes quite clear. It is also important to note that the ethical value for a Stoic is determined by the impulse to act, not the act itself or the outcome. That is because the ability to carry out the act and the outcome of the action are not completely up to us. Therefore, our virtue cannot be dependent upon them. If the value judgment is correct, the desire is to act virtuously, and the impulse is aimed at a virtuous end, the moral worth has already been measured. Our inability to carry out the action, or our failure to bring about the virtuous end, is not counted against us. Interestingly, each of these three things that are within our power has a spiritual practice or a spiritual discipline associated with it. These spiritual practices are part of the path of the Prokopton. As the path of the Prokopton makes clear, Stoicism is a philosophical way of life designed to discipline our value judgments, desires and aversions, and impulses to action. Each of these spiritual disciplines will be covered during this series of episodes on the path of the Prokopton. As we prepare to embark upon that path of the Prokopton in future episodes, keep in mind the Stoic moral attitude I referred to earlier. Prosoche, or attention, the fundamental spiritual attitude, combined with what is up to us, which is the fundamental rule of life, creates the Stoic moral attitude, which is grateful consent to destiny. The Stoic moral attitude is the conscious and intentional stance the Prokopton takes toward the nature of things. It is the existential choice to gratefully consent to events beyond our control, because those events are the product of a providentially ordered cosmos. There is no better passage to express this attitude than the one by Marcus I quoted above. Therefore, I offer it again and suggest you keep this passage close at hand. Everything suits me that suits your designs, O my universe. Nothing is too early or too late for me that is in your own good time. All is fruit for me that your seasons bring, O nature. All proceeds from you. All subsists in you. And to you all things return. Meditations 4.23 Throughout the meditations we see Marcus encouraging himself to lovingly consent to the will of nature, the providentially ordered cosmos. This is the attitude Marcus consistently attempts to engender in his notes to himself. When he senses that attitude slipping away, he reminds himself, But perhaps you are discontented with what is allotted to you from the whole? Then call to mind the alternative, either providence or atoms, and all the proofs that the universe should be regarded as a kind of constitutional state. Meditations 4.3.5 What is up to us is inextricably connected to the nature of things, the way the world operates. This entails a connection between our model of reality, which falls under the field of physics, and our model for reality, ethics. The Stoics argued that connection is essential, and that is the reason they insisted that Stoic theory and practice must include a providentially ordered cosmos. Without it, concepts like living in agreement with nature, focusing our attention exclusively on what is up to us, and consent to all the events of nature take on an entirely different meaning, one that would be quite foreign to the ancient Stoics. In the coming episodes, I will cover the Stoic spiritual exercises that enable us to make progress along the Stoic path of the Prokopton toward human excellence and well-being. Until then, pay attention to what is within your control and make appropriate use of externals to develop your excellence as a rational human being. Find your true freedom within those things that are within your complete control. 
Pay attention to your value judgments, your desires and aversions, and intentions to act, and learn to trust the cosmos for what is not within your control. By doing so, you will foster a stoic moral attitude, develop your human excellence, and set yourself on the path toward true freedom and well-being. Developing a stoic moral attitude will set your practice of stoicism on fire. Thank you for listening to the Stoicism on Fire podcast. If you're interested in this ancient practice of stoicism, you'll find plenty of resources at www.traditionalstoicism.com. If you're interested in a social media environment where this form of stoicism is being discussed, please join us on Facebook in the Traditional Stoicism group. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on iTunes. That helps other people find this podcast and get introduced to the ancient spiritual practice of the Stoics. If you have feedback for me or a great podcast idea, please send me an email at chris, at C-H-R-I-S, at traditionalstoicism.com. Until next time, I hope you'll continue exploring traditional Stoicism where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine fire of the ancient Stoics. I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of Stoicism on fire.